0: Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins. We both work here at Garden Organic, helping you on your organic growing journey. Each month we like to bring you some gardening tips, whether like me you have a garden, or like Chris you live in a city and grow on a balcony or an allotment. And we're always joined by an interesting guest whose life is shaped by gardening, and particularly organic growing. Our podcast is sponsored by the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Chris and I love this online shop. You can find nearly everything you might need to support your organic growing. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you get 10% off everything. So just go to www.organiccatalogue.com Now, what have we got for you this month? Chris and I will be discussing February jobs for those lovely wintry days when it's not too cold or wet to go outside. And our postbag queries cover how to clear an allotment. Protecting plants from frost. What to do with your old brassica stumps? I even got to sneak in a question of my own. What am I going to do with all the moss which is all over my paths? We find the organic answer to them all. Our interview this month is with Ben Raskin from the Soil Association. He's talking about the hot topic of agroforestry. Why and how to mix trees in with your planting. I think you'll love it. So wherever you're listening, if you're running, sitting in the car or busy in the potting shed, I hope you enjoy this month's chat and you feel inspired to get growing the organic way. Chris, how nice to see you. And you, Sarah. And I'm looking, looking well. Yeah. It's to the same to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're doing all right. We're gardeners, aren't we? We always look well. <laughs> well that's true. And well,
0: I guess we're out of doors a lot as well, whatever the weather is. Rosy like. cheeks, girl, Let's rosy cheeks. Let's face it. February can bring some pretty dire weather, can't
1: it? It certainly can. And I think also post-Christmas people tend to be in the blues. I notice it certainly living in London now. I think maybe too much has gone on the credit card and, you know, all <laughs> that's happened. For me, I come in defence of winter. I actually think it's a very underrated season, a very beautiful season. I walk a lot and I would walk around Enfield, a place called Trent Park on the edge of London, really the trees just look amazing this time. A big oak in a field, mm. silhouetted against a low winter sun, just stops you on your tracks, Sarah. I am trees really engage me this time of year. I always call it, they're in the all together. They're not clothed, well, there's you're no leaves. Their structure, you are like, just like frozen wooden fountains, something like that, you know, just absolutely stunning. It's also a brilliant time of year to learn your trees because Buds is a really good way to identify them. Tree shape is a really good to identify Absolutely. them. So it's a really good way, if you're interested in trees, to learn them. This is the time of year to do it. But those low winter, watery, wintry suns. get yes. the beams of light through them. I just think it's so, so beautiful. Do
0: you know, I agree with you. That winter light, sometimes the grey sky looks like a pigeon's breast. It's so beautiful. <laughs> but I also notice that the days are getting longer. I'm also noticing that there are shoots yeah. of crocuses, of snowdrops, daffodils... All these things are giving us hope, aren't they?
1: They are. You're always in that sense, you know. I think February is an interesting month. You know spring's not far away. You know the growing season's not far away. So you kind of appreciate the beauty of winter, but you know... The anticipation of the spring starts to set
0: in. And I guess if you live further north, it's still very cold and very bleak compared to London, oh, which certainly. has its own little microbe. Well, um, I'm,
1: I'm living in Edinburgh for, for those years when I studied up there. Um, I'm an absolute genius at getting dressed under a duvet in 30 seconds because, uh, <laughs> oh, it's still cold at this time of year. But then again, you go to Peebles, the Borders, and um, Doyle Botanic Garden, I'll mention. The most incredible winter skies. I've never seen anything like it. That's yeah, the way i have at it's it. It's the
0: beauty, isn't yes, it, that yeah, gets us. Yeah. So, winter jobs. Okay, my first one, which I've been doing over the past few weekends, is winter pruning. I have three large climbing roses which go up the front and the back of my house. So I've been up a ladder, cutting those right back to growth buds. Wisteria, honeysuckle. I spent last weekend tackling a very overgrown hawthorn hedge, for instance. Yeah. These are all things that can be done if you wrap up warm, put on top Get the gloves. long johns on. Absolutely. <laughs> and boy, do you feel satisfied when yeah. you've done it. But now is the perfect time to it do is. it. It is.
1: I'll be looking at all pruning, especially, say, fruit trees, uh, wisterias. I'll, I'll prune my vine. I'll spur prune a lot of stuff this time of year. I think it's, that's the time of year because you can see the shape. Cause there's no foliage on them. You can see what you're doing. And it's, it's easy, right? Incredibly satisfying.
0: And if you're not confident about where to cut, you can look it up online. There's all sorts of sources. But basically, you're going down to a strong, healthy Bud, yeah. which may just be a little slit in the side of the, the, the stem. It's not necessarily a bud that's shooting out, depends on the plant. Yeah. But cut down close to that bud and you'll be fine. I
1: would yeah, I would that's right. The word we're looking for is node. You're looking for a node, exactly. right? That's it. And then you and you I usually go down, say if I was pruning a, an apple tree, I'd probably go down to two nodes from the main branch or a rose. Always do an outward facing on a rose as well, so you're not getting any crossing or rubbing wood. It's very, very beautiful very peaceful thing to be doing this time of year
0: and of course Chris now is the perfect time to create a pond isn't it and yes. I've been saying this all winter I'm going to dig my pond you've been threatening
1: to a pond for a while now it's,
0: it's just having the muscle power to do the digging yes, I yeah. but you did a very helpful video on YouTube didn't you on how to dig a pond how yes. to create a pond it's
1: on our website isn't it on www.gardenorganic.org.uk and it is very simple it's, it's actually cost effective it's very cheap to do you need a butyl liner some sand to stop it getting punctured and your muscles are spading some muscles, and you're away. And of course, there's nothing more beneficial to wildlife than a, than a little water aquatic area. It
0: doesn't have to be big, I keep saying to myself. And of course, now is the perfect time because if I can get it done now, it'll be in time for the frogs and the turtles the to come kind of spring. I think,
1: as it's February, any sort of landscaping jobs you've got. This is your last chance, really. So if you want to maybe move around a little some slabs or put in a new path or those kind of structural jobs, this is what I'm doing now this time of year on my lot. And I'm redoing all the 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 borders for my raised bed so I can no dig. All those kind of little constructive jobs I'm doing at the moment. That's
0: very good thinking because the garden looks quite naked at the moment, doesn't it? So that allows you to envisage the bone structure of it. That kind of brings me on to the fact that February is also a good month for planning your planting. Thinking about what you want to grow and where you want it to grow. Do you want to move some plants? Do you want to divide your plants? And then also, where you're going to grow your veg? Yes. Um, I'm a great believer in 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 moving your veg around. I I have raised beds and I make sure that I grow different vegetables in each different. So you're veg. rotating
1: to maximise the exactly. use of your soil. The,
0: the phrase is crop rotation, but. It's it's done for two reasons, I think. One is mainly because you are, well, you're preventing a build-up of disease. Say, like I had an allium leaf miner. Devastated my leeks last autumn. Yeah. I will not be growing leeks in that bed again, possibly for some years. Yeah. It would be a mistake to put them back in. But the other thing that moving your plants around is that when you treat your soil for your hungry veg, and by hungry veg, I mean things like potatoes and brassicas they like a good dose of compost uh, before you plant them Mm. if you've got a just one compost heap and quite a restricted supply of compost use it for those hungry plants then in the other areas you can plant the not so hungry plants like carrots peas and beans other root vegetables because they will be quite happy in the soil that was composted last year it sounds complicated, but all you have to remember is where you planted things last year and then move on them around.
1: Yes, move them on one. It's a very important part. You're right? Otherwise, you do get pathogen build-up. And also, you can take advantage of things like legumes. You can dig them straight into the soil and they'll provide quite a lot of fertiliser for that patch and then you can bring plants in on top of it. It's a very, very um, important part of eggs growing rotation, I would argue.
0: Yeah, and you also presumably are doing something simpler on your balcony, are you? I
1: am indeed. Well, this time of year for me, it's like all gardeners, good ones, Always think ahead. My mind is always in front of myself when it comes to gardening. Because I want to get excited about the season ahead. And I do like to sit there with catalogues. I do like to sit and look at stuff. And there's all these plants coming my way. And, it's so uh, tempting, isn't it? Isn't is, it is. You've, you've got to kick the lid on it a bit. And you've got to get, set yourself a budget. That's the idea, Sarah, I think. But you just, it's really nice to get excited about the year ahead. I think that's a big part of being a garden, I don't think many other subject matters, you have that, I don't think you do, I think it's very unique to us, so embrace it I say, and don't look out the window at Easter, bang, holiday weekend and think, oh I've got a garden, make sure you build up, make sure it's an enjoyable so you can experience. use this
0: quiet, relatively quiet month for yes. planning, yes. feel that sap rising yeah. within you, yes, exactly. you know what's yeah. ahead of you, yeah, exactly. but just plan what you can plant, I think they're so seductive those catalogues, and I look at something and I think, oh yes, I'll have something bright blue in that corner. <laughs> Think about your soil. Think about the position where the plant's going to go. Is it sunny? Is it shady? Have you got acid? Have you got lime soil? That sort of thing. A bit do. of
1: homework doesn't take a long time, and also that means you've engaged that plant already before you've even put it in the ground. You've already got a stake. You've already got skin in the game with that plant. You know, big, for me, the big thing i think about is obviously space. Just make sure you've got the space. Great. Don't forget your house plants. I've been doing a lot of work on my house plants at the moment. I have an ex- extensive collection. You can have a couple, or you can have lots. But I'm now potting those on, ready for the the, the, the season ahead. So I've got quite a big ficus, ben, uh, benjaminus ficus. That's got like rubber plants, weeping figs. I've got things like Schefflera. They're all quite big plants. I'm putting them to new pots, not massive pots, but I'm just moving them up in, uh, a few inches, a few centimetres. And at the same time, I'll sprinkle a little bit of um, slow release comfrey pellet, in fourteen, on Mr. Hills who uh, discovered it I, re- I swear by them you know i use them on balcony i put a little spread through them that means they'll feed my houseplants throughout the summer and really that's job done i water quite freely for the summer i'm hardly watering at all in the winter they're potted up ready to go for the spring
0: i haven't started sewing yet and i won't until march so i think yeah, we'll leave that one for this month and hit it hit the ground running in march
1: Yep, that sounds good
0: and is there anything else I think a little tip, keep off your wet and frozen soil if you can. If you tread on it, you'll just flatten it and, and you'll compact it.
1: Yes, yeah, so you're gonna end up with drainage problems. You are destroying the soil structure if you're treading on wet, frosted ground. There's no need to be doing it. If you really have to go I'll well, just throw down a board, spread your weight on it, and that will cause less damage.
0: And one final thing, if you're really bored and cold, turn your compost heap.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: It just helps to aerate it, which helps the whole lot to rot down ready for you to use in the growing area. I
1: love that. The, the heat that comes out of it when you move it I really do little bit of caution maybe just nice and gently turn it in case there's any slow worms or anything in there because I do get those on my allotment site, so I turn it but I I actually do I can get in there with my hands quite happily to be honest with you I don't need a tool for it I uh, I can come home rather smelly much of the to the disgust of my good lady wife, i can well, tell you. <laughs> each to their own. That's yeah, I, I I'm that. rolling in my newly turned over soil, and I'm turning, <laughs> and I'm yeah, I'm come out myself.
0: <laughs> so February needn't be gloomy. Let's enjoy it and relish it, and get excited about what's coming ahead. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Chris. This year more than ever we're conscious of the climate emergency and one of the solutions to reduce carbon emissions is to plant trees lots of them we thought it would be interesting to hear about how trees can be grown across the land by farmers and growers even gardeners not to replace crops but to be mixed in with them chris spent time with one of the experts in this area ben raskin from the soil association ben has worked across the country from wales to kent Oxfordshire, and now he's currently working and researching at Eastbrook Farm in Wiltshire. Chris joined him there, and they settled down to chat in a large barn.
1: Well, hi Ben. Thanks so much for inviting me up to Eastbrook Farm. We have had a little tour to look at the agroforestry going on A lot of people probably not heard of agroforestry. It's not—it's not very common, is it? It's been around a long time. Maybe just describe just what agroforestry really is. What you're trying to achieve with it? So,
2: in, in its. Most basic sense it's the deliberate integration of trees and farming. So, okay. so rather than having a, you know, your field of cows or your field of wheat um, and then your woodland somewhere else, you're actually m- mixing those up, mixing the trees and the farm enterprises, but doing it consciously and, and managing both aspects of them. Right. Uh, it, it serving a proper function in a way and a, and a deliberate thought about function within the farm.
1: And I suppose if you're... So it's diversity is the key in a little way, so you're mixing everything together. That has quite a lot of organic traits in, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, so organic farming has always been much more mixed... Than, than some of the, kind of the more intensive farms that are developed recently. Organic farming relies on a rotation, usually with animals, not always. And the bringing trees in is, as you say, it adds to that diversity and complexity. And, and we know that diverse systems are more resilient. We know they're more productive. So actually, if you can successfully bring trees in, it should help.
1: So let's think, if if I was one of the listeners, how do we picture this? So um, you've mentioned trees, you've mentioned fruit, um, ground cover, um, animals. So what would be a typical sort of plot then, would you think? Well, I'm not sure there is a typical
2: plot. And one of the challenges, in a way, when you start thinking about what you might do, you know, either on a farm, but even if you're thinking about doing something similar in the garden, is you know, well, what tree do I plant? There's so many trees I could choose and, and how does that fit with, with a whole range of enterprise? So very quickly you get into an almost infinite number of possibilities. So, so rather than kind of thinking perhaps of a typical system, it, we're trialling a few different systems, yeah. I guess, earlier on the farm, which one of them is going to be a chicken and tree <laughs> enterprise. So, so the idea there is that, you know, chickens are woodland or woodland edge birds. They like being under trees. It makes them feel happy. They get the shelter in the shade. So, I mean, like, you know, we've just been walking around in the rain, mm. feeling a bit cold. Actually, it'd been quite nice to be sheltered under a tree. Animals feel the same. They don't like being out in the middle of a field in the scorching the sun. They're exposed. They're driving exposed. rain, yeah. yeah. And they're, they're, most of them are prey animals. So, you know, is a bird going to come and get them? Is a, you know someone going to eat them? So they like that protection of, of trees. And one of the big things is actually around temperature. So... If you're sheltered by trees, you, the, the air temperature can be four or five degrees higher. Um, and if you're not spending all that energy keeping warm, you can put that energy into something else. You know, is it laying eggs or milk or, or whatever your farm and you know, production system is, that energy can be used for being productive rather than just keeping warm.
1: So the trees are making happy chickens, basically. Exactly. So you're cropping the trees of nuts, fruits, and you get the eggs and the chicken itself. Yeah. So you're combining those two ecosystems in a way; yeah. those two forms of life together. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and they're, they're,
2: they're usually thirty or forty percent more productive overall. Wow, so that's a big percentage. It is, you know, yeah. and, and you know, you're you're if you think, you know, to, to get. Thirty percent more yield from just one crop would be really hard. Yeah. You know, you'd have to put a lot of, probably a lot of extra fertilizer. You'd have to spend a lot of time weeding it or whatever it is. But actually, just by planting the trees, you can get a similar overall product. Wow, yeah.
1: that is a mate. That is a high percentage. I'm shocked, actually, how yeah. that one. I mean, country.
2: it can be more. I mean, there's a quite an interesting uh, case study. which chap called David Brass, who's a free-range egg producer, and he's one of the, I think, one of the McDonald's sustainable producers. So he's he's big big egg producer and he did a trial with 33 plots with trees and 33 plots of egg um, and compared the findings for him you know almost every measure was better with trees so he got uh, thicker egg shells uh, he got higher number of grade a eggs uh, he got less stress less feather pepping lower mortality uh, less ammonia emissions from the system Uh, the ground was drier, you know, so a whole range of range. And and the the plants,
1: the plants benefit as well? Uh, He
2: wasn't measuring that, he was looking at the chickens. Have have you noticed Uh,
1: anything with the plants at all?
2: Well, we, so there was one bit of ours where we, when we did have the chickens, which is almonds interplanted with raspberries. Yeah. So we mulched it all with wood chip, uh, and then the the first half of that row, the chickens, was the one that the chickens tended to go to, it was nearer their their house, and so they were pecking away and keeping that weed free, giving it a little bit of fertiliser. And the raspberries on that bit are uh, three or four times the size of the bit. Wow. Where they didn't, they were still mulched, but they didn't get that same attention. And even now, two years later, you can see that difference. There's a difference
1: between the two sets of Absolutely. plants. Yeah. So basically, the the, 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 um, the chickens are almost being gardeners in a way that they're, they're, yeah. getting, they're eradicating competition, stopping uh, the weeds growing and fertilising. Yeah. And
2: possibly even, I mean, you know, there may not be many pests because it was a new planting, but in a more established setting, they'll be eating pest insects as wow. well. So,
1: you know, P&D control, pest and disease control, fertiliser, weeding, weeding, all fluid chicken. Exactly. Brilliant.
2: And then, you know, you don't have to pay them to do it. They pay you to do it because <laughs> yeah. you got eggs. You, you get know. free eggs as
1: well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what what's not to like? If I think, obviously, you're doing it on a big scale here, in terms of obviously most people have a small urban backyard, I have actually have a balcony or, uh, or an allotment. I have an allotment. If you were to encourage people at home to do it, uh, people in their own private spaces, how, how would you go about that in terms of agroforestry? So I do have an
2: allotment as well, yeah. and I am doing agroforestry. Yeah. Tell <laughs> <All> me about <laughs> that. So effectively, you can, have, you can have any tree, you can even you know, potentially you could call soft fruits and vegetables agroforestry. Yeah. You know, a, a fruit bush is still a, a woody perennial in that sense. Yeah. You know, um, and, it, and it's all in a way, it's all about thinking about that design. Um, there's, a lot of this does come from some of the permaculture principles. I'm not particularly a permaculture expert, but agroforestry is sometimes seen as the sort of commercial version of, of permaculture. Uh, of permaculture. Mm. So it's looking at, at designing your whole garden in a way that benefits it. Um, So so the way I've done it in my allotment, for instance, is I've I've divided it up into uh, six beds, effectively, and I've got a a espaliered apple tree in between each of those beds. Um, My intention will be to keep it to about six foot high so it won't get too shady and it'll be trimmed back. So it's, it's in a way, it's quite a small, narrow bit, but it's still getting those benefits. It's creating a bit of shade for some of the vegetables that like shade. But not so much shade that the ones that want the sun
1: can't get it. So in a way, then, if I in my balcony, if I took some pots and I put some soft fruit in, and I applied maybe some lettuce around them, and I'm in a way practicing a bit of agroforestry on. Yeah, a bit of, yeah, and I think
2: you know, obviously, getting a tree onto your balcony gets a bit harder. Yes, but, yeah. but it is. It's just it's that diversity. I mean, what you won't get, I guess, on on the balcony. So one of the real key benefits in the larger setting is build up of that soil health yeah. and soil life yeah. and one of the things that's really important for soil health is the fungal populations and the one thing that fungus hate is being disturbed mm-hmm. so every time you dig or you know or in a farm if you're plowing you're killing off the fungus in that soil if you dig your whole area then obviously you're damaging all of that but if you've got an area under the tree which is never disturbed then the fungus and the soil life is going to develop better. So your whole system becomes more resilient because it's more connected. And those fungus in those areas will be talking to fungus everywhere else. So you could be bringing in nutrients from fungus two miles away through this kind of network. I sometimes think of it as kind of like the road network system in that you're getting something from London to Newcastle. You can go all the way through on these different roads. Well, actually your fungal system in your gardens and all your neighbours' gardens, that all links up. Yeah. Um, so that you know, if you've got a good fungal, high nutrient bit of soil under your trees, it can be feeding your vegetables.
1: And so, if you're by digging etc you're disturbing that fungal network, yeah. are you? You're actually breaking that up.
2: Absolutely. And, yeah. then,
1: and then that fungal network also help uh, keep a balance of pests and disease in the soil and, that, and nutrients if, in the soil. Yeah, and, and
2: it can do. I think there's, there's even some studies that show i'm not sure it's fully understood how but it shows that plants can communicate to each other through these soil networks so if a, if one plant is getting attacked by pests it sends a signal to those other plants that says mm. aphids over here yeah
1: and so they all go all oh, right okay let's
2: send out some, some tannins to stop the aphids eating us so, so that
1: symbiosis is the word i suppose between the fungus and the soil is absolutely fundamental for healthy plant growth yeah right? yeah. yeah yeah that's really interesting. if you do that in a small urban garden on an allotment uh, a bit trickier on a, on a container garden, yeah. but you can still maybe have a, a mixed planting on there, a diverse planting. Yeah, in, and uh, you, uh, you'll
2: yeah. get some of the benefits, but you might not yeah, get them. Yeah, sure, a number sure, number,
1: yeah. yeah. I always think of agroforestry, um, mm. my time in Cameroon many years ago, and for there it was about countering soil erosion because of the slash and burn. So I take it as big benefits for soil here as well.
2: So yeah, soil erosion, both from wind and water, it can help. So it'll slow water down, it'll slow wind down, it protects the soil, uh, builds soil organic matter, which obviously helps against erosion as well.
1: And what about nutrients? Has it become self-cycling? Has it become self-sufficient as a well? way, an agroforestry prop?
2: They, absolutely. And the, so one of, the, one of the things that's talked about quite a lot is the way that agroforestry uses bits of the soil that smaller plants don't. So if you, you know, most people I think are probably aware that what you see above ground with a plant is roughly what's below the ground. Um, so the bigger the plant above, the more root you've got underneath. So if you're just growing grass or you're just growing wheat, you're actually only using a foot or two of the soil. If you're then growing a tree that's roots are going down two, three, four three, four metres, then you can effectively make a better use of that mm. soil resource that you've got. And then they're bringing those nutrients up from that soil t- into the leaves. The leaves drop back into the soil. So all of that nutrient is being recycled and potentially is then available to your other enterprises.
1: Wow, so you'll get more volume and You're in more reach by doing yes. this this way. And how does... I know obviously you do a lot of work with the Soil Association. It's quite close to you. Do they fit into this, into Eastbrook? Are they a part of this setup?
2: Well, there's a there's a sort of mutual beneficial relationship. So I work for the Soil Association and I also work for the farm here at Eastborough. We do a lot of practical work. So uh, I mentioned a handbook that we've just written, which is aimed at farmers thinking about agroforestry, but we also do quite a lot of work trying to persuade government or other bodies to support agroforestry planting. So having somewhere like this that we can bring people and demonstrate I mean, we're not getting everything right, but we can demonstrate how it looks. And so
1: you kind of see this as almost a pioneer um, example of what other ag- other ag- farmers can do, sorry.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, what they can do or what they might not want to do. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we are trialling, we're trialling quite a lot of different species. We're trialling sort of one or two different systems.
1: Sure, it's just quite important work.
2: Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's, you know, there are a number of farms, farmers now trialling this stuff. There's a there's a few that have been going for maybe five years. 10 years, Stephen Briggs is is one who's an arable and apple farmer up in Cambridgeshire. But, you know, there's a number now, there's a really interesting stuff going on at Dartington down in Devon, um, where they've got this multiple tenant system where they subrent just the roadies with the trees on. You know, you might not own a farm, but actually you could be really interested in growing tree crops.
1: So, so you, you could be a market gardener and lease a bit of that land, could you? And exactly. then, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, you could say, I, I want to grow apples for, you know, I want to grow pears to make peri cider, which is what we're doing. But actually, I'll just go and rent some strips of land in someone mm. else's farm. So you don't have to be a millionaire to yeah. to become to become a farmer potentially. So it's
0: like right, you can get
1: almost like a people's movement of organic fresh produce growing up in through, through agroforestry yeah. means yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's quite exciting, isn't it, don't you think? Really exciting. And yeah. I, I... And that kinda of brings me to, I suppose, in a way, um, the organic movement as a whole, because I suppose for us times are changing a little bit, aren't they? We have kind of we're, we have the Social and Guard kind organic of quite old organisations, yeah. but they, we've now we're erring into much more different things, aren't we? Into environmental, into climate change, into all these questions aren't we do you see that's where the futures going
2: I think yeah I mean I the way I'd see it I don't know whether you you would agree with this but you know I've, those are the organizations that you mentioned you know, they I think they saw some of the challenges a long time they were before. ahead of the t- ahead of their
1: time in a way
2: <laughs> and we were you know it was a struggle often to get people to listen but but also some of those sort of real consequences of what we were doing hadn't really come home to roost. And now we're seeing some of that happening. Mm. You know, we're seeing some real soil degradation in parts of the country. We're seeing climate change and global warming. You know, we're seeing some of those things where... You can't ignore it anymore. And actually, some of the stuff that those pioneering organisations or pioneering farmers were doing, we can learn a little bit from that, how we manage or how we code. I think a lot of people are now waking up to that. And, and, you know, they might not want to be organic, you know, with a big O, mm. but actually they're really interested in soil. They really care about soil. What we've seen is that people are really asking quite detailed questions about where their food's coming from.
1: So really I think an interesting time to be part of the organic movement and to be and to be looking at things like agroforestry and diverse plantings, etc. And I think
2: yeah, we need to we need to always be questioning what we're doing. Yeah. You know, is is organic enough? Well no it's not. Yeah. You know, organic is great, there's a lot of good stuff there, but there's more we can be doing we need to be making organic better or moving you know i, th- I think as
1: gardeners we're always experimenting are we i don't think that ever changes is it you're always kind of looking and learning from other yeah. other gardeners and and i think that gives us a strength doesn't it really because we we are coming up with solutions by the fact we have that natural approach to things i suppose that's a good way of looking at it
2: yeah i agree and I, one of the things i've certainly noticed in my 25 odd years in organic horticulture is that mostly people are so willing to share
1: I think we are, by nature, incredibly generous because yeah. I haven't worked a bit in TV. If you come across the chefs, they like, you're not getting my recipe. Mate. <laughs> Whereas we just can't wait to tell people, can we? Yeah. We are... Um,
2: yeah, and I think also there's, I don't know... There's nothing to lose by not being. Mm. Yeah, I, could tell, I could tell you everything that we're doing here. And you yeah. could go away. And even if we were after the same market, you'd do it in a different way. You if would, yeah. Do, you, know, you get so a, a
1: complete But also it's that, that idea of people when they're looking at their own spaces, their own allotments, their own back gardens and thinking they can do stuff that's beneficial to the soil their health fresh food having that kind of reach and, and many many little drops maketh a shower right? and that's yeah, kind of yeah, how yeah. I see it I like the term I read when I was reading your stuff my, doing my homework if you like of the 3D agriculture 3D yeah. horticulture The
2: Stephen Briggs I mentioned earlier I think he talks about that quite a lot and he's got this great saying that he says one of the issues of, uh, of making agroforestry more popular he says the people who work with trees are always looking up and people who work with plants are always looking down
1: and they never meet I hope that um, people who listen to this interview in the podcast really get something of it and find out more about it. And again, you know, brilliant to chat to you, Ben. I've really enjoyed it. Pleasure.
0: And now it's time to open the podcast post bag. We've got Hannah here and
3: Anton and Chris of course. Um, so first question Hannah from your post bag. Yeah so the first one's a really common one and um, so someone's written in and said they've just taken on a new allotment and it's very overgrown with wheat and brambles very daunting how would we recommend they go about approaching it
0: i completely sympathize with this person partly because i think it's a tradition that allotments are a certain size and that size is really quite large and especially if you're time poor either through work or family commitments or whatever it's a lot of ground to take on all at once I think there are two things here. I think the first approach is, first of all, slash all that greenery to the ground. It's going to be bindweed, my guess, brambles, docks, dandelions. They're all going to be there. Take the greenery down to the ground. It's very satisfying. It's hard work. It'll warm you up in the February month. And put all the greenery on your new compost heap. Now, I personally would divide that allotment up. I wouldn't try and do the whole thing at once. I would probably divide it in half, say. And on one half, I'd put a very, very thick mulch, as thick as you can make it, six inches or more, with compost or well-rotted manure, and then cover that with either with a fabric. Uh, there's one called MyPex, which is plastic, sort of tough fabric, or cardboard. Um, And weight that down and then leave that for at least six months, if not a year or so. What will happen then is that the worms underneath and the soil life underneath all this mulch will come to life and pull that mulch down into the soil and after six months, a year or whatever, you will get this beautiful friable soil that's wonderfully rich, which you can pull the weeds out very, very easily. Would
1: you agree with that? I do indeed. In fact, if, Well, I've had a similar experience as well, as you know. I, I took over an allotment which no one had touched for five years. And it is daunting. That is a good word to describe it, even for an experienced gardener like me. Um, but I, I what, where you've just described what you do, it does work perfectly. It was a longer period for me. I did have an incredible amount of horsetail, which is a very vigorous and resists you big time oh, yeah. Must, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then, so I did I used mushroom compost actually but I did I chopped it off. I, I recommend anyone to buy a mattock right? A very useful tool it's like a pickaxe but one end is flat and you can grub out as much as you can so that's good you know. it's cheaper than the gym and you'll enjoy it in the fresh air get that out and then put. I put a nice thick layer of mushroom compost down then I put my Mypex which is permeable so it breathes it lets the soil breathe and I left it for two seasons the first season I lifted it I could still see there was quite a lot of roots horsetail root in there so I repinned it uh, now it just looks like I only had to roll about it the other day. It looks like <laughs> And I can put a fork through it and I can see there are no roots in it. So you can still use your log and I've still grown lots of stuff. I'll just, as you say, the word is fallow. I've just left sections of it under the mypex to reclaim it and it's worked perfectly and it's a perfectly organic, non-chemical way. And all the worms are still there and all the health, all the microbes are still there and I'm going to have a great time growing on that land now.
0: And also in the other half or the other portion that you feel able to tackle, think also about where you're going to put paths whether you can plant some small fruit trees, um, all these things will take up space and therefore reduce that large daunting area that you feel you've got to get on top of. It will reduce it down to manageable areas. And I think that's the key thing with a lot
1: if things. Yeah, compartmentalise. Maybe get a little pen and paper, do a little design on it and can't compartmentalise it and then you've got it all... It will do that sort of look at it. I mean, when I first got mine and I cleared it and I dug it over it and looked like I could get a bus from one end to the other. They are big plots of land so yeah. don't, don't try and take on too much at once It's a quite important rule. Yeah. I think. Yeah. The
0: mulching works very well. I don't have an allotment but I have raised beds and I had one that was completely compacted with bindweed and it had my raspberry canes in it. So I had to say goodbye to raspberries for 12 months, do this idea of mulching and then covering. I used cardboard in fact weighted down with bricks. And it was remarkable. After a year, I could pull the bindweed out as easily as you pull a string of spaghetti out of a bowl.
1: And what about rotavators,
4: Anton, when you want to clear an unlock them? Well, obviously it's a very tempting thing to do because it turns the soil over and makes it look tidy just for a short time. But this will actually make the problem a lot worse. And basically you're chopping up all those perennial weed roots and multiplying up those plants. So if you've got anything like bindweed or bramble roots, you're, you're basically making a problem ten times worse. And also you can, especially if it's sort of wet, you will be sort of destroying the soil structure. There's, you create what's called a soil pan just underneath where the sort of blades of the rotivators are pounding. And that creates a hard layer which roots find very difficult to penetrate. So I would steer clear of them.
3: Tempting, but at the same time to be avoided. Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. Um, so, the next question is asking about frost. What's the best way to protect tender perennials from frost?
1: Well, it depends uh, which ones you're talking about, Hannah. I think the, um, the, the big sort of tender perennials we think about is maybe Dixonians, like tree ferns, these kind of really exotic plants we've brought into our landscapes uh, and we planted over the last sort of decade or so. There's a very art form to that almost. When I worked at Botanic Gardens, we would actually wrap the crowns in hessian to protect that in the crown. So you'd probably stuff it with straw, bind it with twine, and then bind it with hessian, and it looks actually looks quite quite strange, quite attractive in its own way. But that would stop any damp and and uh, frost getting into the crown of the plant, which will cause the damage. Because nice, I've
0: seen people use bubble wrap, that you? How yes, do you do. do you it's exactly
1: it? the same. It's still insulin. I don't think it looks very pretty. I right. prefer the hessian because it's a more natural material. But hey, if you want to use bubble wrap, that's fine. It does the same job. Um, if you stop popping all the bubbles before you get it on there. And then, um, yeah, so that's that, that'll protect that. The other thing that maybe you might talk about is uh, basis perennials. Um, this time of year, you've got the dead crowns on. I would never touch them until probably around late March or mid-March because those that dead sort of straw material, the original plant, will protect the crowns of the plant the roots of the plant from any late frost or dampness so that's probably the best way it's a natural protection you see it in the wild um, so use it in your own garden
3: as well and is it within frost is it the cold that's the problem
0: i think it's very often a combination of cold but probably more damp actually so yes frost might kill the stems of the plant and certainly might kill the tender crown that chris is talking about but the dampness is very often the killer, especially plants that like free-draining soil, perennials that like that. Which perennial. most of them
1: do, which is a majority of them. They all like that sort of free-draining, nice, loamy soil. And, and
0: the old stems from last year's flowering can look very beautiful on a frosty mm. morning with the light catching them. And if they've got seed heads, don't forget the birds will like the seeds on the seed heads as well.
1: Do you, would you collect uh, leaves from around it? Would you pick the leaves up, mm-hmm. Anton?
4: Um, generally, it's a good idea to pick up the leaves because they can sort of let things get sort of quite moist and damp under there but you do need to check for wildlife as well certainly in my garden I've got a hedgehog nesting behind one of the plant pots so just let that pile of leaves Ooh, lucky go, go yeah, very of lucky. undisturbed and we've also found frogs and toads under those piles so yeah check what you're lifting up so just be careful basically that is the tip is it yeah.
3: <laughs> so can we talk dahlias in particular they're massively back in fashion now my next door neighbour's got a beautiful display and every Christmas or every winter he brings them into the loft. Is that necessary?
1: Well, I think that it's a two-way thing, isn't it, really? It, I want to say it's time. If you can leave your dailies in the ground, I know there's a allotment the next to me have got a lot of dailies and they don't lift them and they look fine this year. Um, and On my old parks days, where I worked with some amazing gardeners, they were really, really big into dailies, specialists, and they spent a lot of time and energy on them. And they would lift their dailies and they would um, cut the eyes down so they got new shoots and they would put them in sand, trays and they would be stored somewhere cold and dry and their argument was that means they didn't spread any viruses they were less pest and disease um, prone but I think it probably worked both ways it also depends on which part of the country you live in as well what do you think Sarah?
0: Yeah I agree with you Chris and I'm actually experimenting this year with not lifting my dahlias um, I used to do that and, and lift them put them in sand and keep them over winter and brush them down and cut them off and dah, 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 dah. and this year I thought what the hell I'm just going to leave them and see what happens I'll let you know, but I suspect it's not going to work because not because of frost, but because it's been so wet, mm. and I think they'll rot in that very heavy wet soil that we've had over this wet winter. Mm-hmm. I can
4: chip in that um, the winter before last i I didn't lift them, but put them in pots into the into the greenhouse just to keep them dry, and last summer I did get the fairly. Pretty, well, pretty good display good things, yeah. so it was okay but whether i could keep doing that long term i don't know
3: so we're talking compost now love talking compost and um, someone's written in and asked if it's okay to put brassica stumps on the compost heap some have very yellow leaves and some what would you recommend well the yellow
4: leaves is generally not a problem that's just a natural process of the leaves dying dying off there might be a few sort of fungal diseases on the leaves and um, there's um, alternaria leaf spot, but that actually just gets broken down in the compost, so that's not, not a problem. What you would want to look out for is club root on the roots. Yes, yeah, good point. Um, that is a very sort of pernicious disease. It will Once it gets into the soil, it can stick around. You for can't about, really grow brushes there, can you? No, you soon, yeah. it'll stick around for about 20 years <laughs> in, in this soil, so you don't want to get that in. And club root, it basically looks like a lump of ginger on the bottom of your bottom of your brassicas the roots are
0: swollen and and horribly distorted aren't they and
4: that's caused by a fungus so and that won't get broken down in your compost bin so you really don't want to be putting that into your compost and spreading it all around your garden Mm. you could put it out for your green waste collection because a hot composting process which is done in a sort of large commercial heap that will Break down the club root, but not in your, you can't rely on that working in your domestic compost bin. The other thing is they can be quite tough as well. They might take a long time to break down, so I would chop them up a bit first as well, otherwise you'll find you've got... They be there been there, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: shred them is, quite,
4: is a good idea. Smash them yeah. with a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But the yellow leaves, nothing to worry about, right? Yellow
4: leaves, nothing to worry about, no.
3: Great. The last question, Sarah, this is yours. We've well, yes, I've
0: snuck one in of my own, Hannah. I hope you don't mind. But I've noticed, partly because it's been such a wet winter, but my paths and edges are covered in moss. Which is very beautiful, but lethal. Um, So I just wondered, guys, if I remove it, which I have done in certain areas, what, what would you do with it? Would you put it on the compost heap? I've left some out for the birds because I know they like building their nests from moss. But what, else, what other uses do you think there is
1: for it? Well, I'm a big, as you know, container gardener, and that is just gold dust for hanging baskets to me. Oh, <laughs> Chris, I'll <give> you <laughs> yes, something. You can, I'm more than happy. Because <laughs> it's actually quite expensive to buy, and I'm always a bit worried about the sustainability as well, Absolutely. where it comes from, because it's never really clear. So anything I can naturally get, in fact, I did a client's lawn last year, and I had to sprint, they had a very damp lawn, it was on clay, so it was full of moss. And I spring boxed it, I got the lawn lake on it, and I got all my moss for the year out of that lawn, little five-foot-by-five-foot five, five foot lawn. So I would definitely put it to that use. And you're right, the birds, as soon as I've got it in the baskets, I've got magpies on there stealing it all, so I need a backup.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what would you do, Anton?
1: Well, if, let's say you didn't have a use for it for your hanging baskets.
4: Um, some people are worried if they put it in their compost that they're going to end up spreading moss spores around, but this isn't really a great worry. They It doesn't sort of spread it around and they do break down in the compost. I think the main worry is that it just takes a long time to break down. So you do need to add it in moderation to your compost. People say about sort of not more than about one in four of your mm-hmm. material should be moss. So just add it gradually, perhaps have it in a big pile there, and like Chris said, just leave it out for the birds because they really like using it for their nests.
0: Yeah. Well, I have got an awful lot of the stuff. So Chris, <laughs>
3: there's a. Well, there bag you go. I'll have a bag of that, that. off yeah. you, no
0: problem. Great. Yeah. <laughs> right.
3: That's it. Thank you very much. Great. Cheers, Anna.
1: Sadly,
0: we've come to the end. It sounds like a busy month for us all, and we haven't even started the growing season yet. I hope you have time to enjoy those winter skies, cold frosty days and quiet, thoughtful planning for the growing year ahead. Next month we have the wonderful Joe Swift with us. He and Chris chat about Gardener's World, Chelsea and how Joe first started in garden design. Do join us. Don't forget there's loads of information on the Garden Organic website, www.gardenorganic.org.uk about all of the topics we discuss today. And why not head over to the organic gardening catalogue online for all your seeds and gardening needs. And whatever the weather, I hope you feel inspired in your organic plot. Our thanks to Kevin MacLeod for providing the music.